We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're hearing from Helen Chersky, one of the UK's most popular science presenters, a physicist, oceanographer and friend of the show. Her new book is Blue Machine, which looks at the complex ecosystems that make up our seas, which cover 71% of the planet. In conversation with Helen is science editor of The Times, Tom Whipple. This episode was recorded live online on the 5th of June 2023. Let's join Helen and Tom now. I am delighted to introduce our guest today. She is Helen Chersky, the author of books including Storm in a Teacup, The Physics of Everyday Life, and her new title just out, Blue Machine, How the Ocean Shapes Our World, which we will be discussing today. Helen, welcome, and tell us why you're writing a book about oceans. It's a slightly complicated question because it's partly what I do now is that I am a physicist, but I use my physics to study the surface of the ocean. But really, it comes about from a frustration that we don't talk about the ocean. We talk about fish and dolphins and pollution, all the things that are in the water, but we don't talk about the water itself. And I didn't I didn't grow up with the ocean. I grew up in Manchester and, you know, it's not that it's not particularly close to the sea. Uh, there are two seas, the Irish Sea and the North Sea. And if you're a child who's about 10 years old and you live in Manchester, as far as you're concerned, they're both cold and horrible. So I did not go near the ocean um, until... After I finished my PhD and I rocked up at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography by accident. And what was interesting about being there was I understood things in the lab and there was this kind of there was a sort of moment of revelation when I watched the, you know, I watched people walk out to study the ocean and understood that there was something out there that no one had ever told me about. And I was so indignant. Like, why is no one talking about this? Um, you know, I was that kid, as you probably were, I guess, you know, I read all the science books and I read New Scientist and no one had ever told me about the ocean. And it seemed ridiculous. And so I, I moved into doing that and I started to, I, you know, I learned, I went around with my ears flapping. I asked people for book recommendations or that kind of thing. And then all these years later, um, still no one has written a book that tells people what the ocean is. And, um, so yeah, so I, it's, it's, that was, that was what I set out to do. And I've, I'm relieved to have got it out in a way. It's very cathartic. <laughs> and what were you, so, so just before we went on air, uh, we checked how we were going to introduce each other. And you were originally oceanographer, physicist and television presenter. And you wanted to change physicist and oceanographer around. What was a physicist doing at Scripps? And how does that make you a little bit of an oceanographer? Or, or what, what's the academic hierarchy and how did you end up there? Well, I, I mean, I've got, I've passed exams in physics. So, so that's why I f- identify still slightly more with, with being a physicist. But it's actually quite common in oceanography to have come from something else, right? 
plenty of us were trained in maths, chemistry, biology, ecology, um, physics, and sort of engineering as well, and sort of arrived at the ocean as the thing you were going to work on. And it's partly because it's so big and complicated, and it's not a very well-known subject, but it's also because you need all these areas of expertise. Like you kind of can't just study oceanography. You need to be, you need to know the details of the chemistry or the details of biology. Um, and so, so I'm definitely, and, and I study the physics of the ocean surface, the breaking waves and bubbles. And I'm very aware that there are people, so, you know, then labels sort of become unhelpful. There's the, there are people called physical oceanographers who study the large scale um, movements of the ocean and the details of all of that. And, and that's not what I do. I, I study the physics of the very, the surface layer. So I guess I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, it's a slightly defensive move that, um, you need all these different disciplines. And what I happen to do is the physics of the surface ocean. And so I still think of myself as a physicist. But of course, in the ocean, you know, I am working and working with and learning about physics and chemistry and biology, you know, especially chemistry and biology all the time. It's not possible to study just one without the others. It's a very collaborative place. It's actually one of the, you know, as an academic, I, I've worked in lots of academic fields and oceanography, without meaning to, you know, offend anyone else, Oceanography is the nicest by far. And it's because people work on ships together and they you have to collaborate. Like you cannot do that thing that you sometimes get in molecular biology where people stay in their lab and they don't want to talk to people because someone else might scoop their discovery. Um, in the ocean, you have to collaborate. It's built in. And so when I was when I first went to sea I was told oh you're definitely you have to call yourself you're an, you have to call yourself an oceanographer now because you go to sea but actually I think we've moved on from that because you know of course not everyone can go to sea either because of um their uh the way their life works or their commitments or you know whatever it is and we definitely need people who don't go to sea the people who build the instruments the people who work on the computer theories and they are also ocean scientists so so I think the oceanographer term has broadened out it's a very broad church. And so you say you wanted to write a book about what the ocean is, and we were sort of amazed that no one had written this before. Um, but the ocean is a big lake that's salty. What, what, what is it to say? <laughs> if we weren't being recorded, I would call you properly rude things for saying that. And so that completely underestimates what the ocean is and what it does. And the, the idea that I really want to get across in the book, actually, is that it's not just a big salty pond. It's got internal anatomy, which is moving around and it's doing things. It's doing things that directly affect us. And humans have generally, you know, we sit at the surface and one day there's some fish or one day there's an algal, algal bloom and we kind of go, oh, look, there's a thing. Um, and it's as though someone's just, you know, the cosmic, someone's rolled some cosmic dice and today there's algae. And it's not like that at all. There is a, there is a machine turning underneath that is moving things around. And sometimes it brings the things to the surface that you need for, you know, a huge amount of fish to live or for an algal bloom or to have really cold water. Um, but it doesn't just pop. It doesn't just happen. It happens because of the engine turning underneath. And I, so I think it's time to see that engine, to see what it's doing and to see just how much influence it's had on our culture and history and civilization and the animals that live in it. Because of course, 
animals also, you know, they don't just happen to live in an ocean. They go, the ones that can swim will go looking for the places within its anatomy that are most useful to them. So it's not the case, for example, that Iceland just happens to have fish. Iceland sits at a crossroads in the North Atlantic where two huge currents move past each other um, and they're both carrying different things. And so the boundary between them is a bit like a city. It's got all the good stuff from both sides and you get a lot of mixing. So you get a huge amount of life. So, you know, the structure of where we live and uh, where people have built cities and traded and all of that is it's kind of built on this engine that is running everything underneath. So one, obviously I was being facetious and I, I read the book and it's fascinating. And <laughs> you, you start it by saying that look, the effectively the, the ocean is a way of intercepting, intercepts light from the sun, converts this energy briefly into something useful before sending it then off back into the universe. Um, and, and it does this to a large extent through the currents. Can you talk about some more specific examples of where these currents are working and, and how they're in, interacting our lives? I mean, I'm particularly thinking about what goes on on the west coast of South America, which may be pertinent soon. Yes. <laughs> um, well, so the the surface ocean gets heated up, so light doesn't travel very far through the ocean, so it goes a little way in and then it just turns into heat. So the, the surface ocean is warmer than, than what's underneath. And so that's the first sort of part of anatomy is that the ocean's got layers and they are different. It doesn't just all mix up. And so um, currents, the surface currents are driven by mainly by the wind, which ultimately comes from solar power, um, but they're also influenced by the spin of the earth. And there is a particular, you know, and so basically in the big ocean basins of the world, you get these gyres, these big kind of merry-go-rounds that are, you know, so the Gulf Stream is just a part of one. So it goes up um, around the North Atlantic on the western side, and then it actually comes down the other side, but it slows right down and it crosses back just above the equator and then goes around. So it's going round and round like a big kind of carousel. So, so there's big, slow currents like that. And then there's smaller, faster ones on top. Um, but when it comes to the uh, the the coast of Chile, which is where you're talking about, there's a really there's basically a paradox in the ocean. And the paradox is that there shouldn't be any life. And the reason there shouldn't be any life is because for life to exist, you need two things: you need energy to fuel everything, but then you need some stuff. You need nutrients, matter, the right atoms in order to make it all work. And um, the, the, the nature of life is that it tends to sink over long periods of time. So anything that's useful will go round and round the surface ocean for a bit and it will gradually sink out. So the problem is that you end up with the nutrients all down the bottom and the sunlight up the top. So there shouldn't be any life. The, the ocean should be dead. But there are places that break this rule, that bring nutrients up to the surface where the sunlight is, and then you have a really productive place where lots of life can grow. And so the coast of Chile is one of those places. And what happens there is that this upper warm layer of water gets pushed away from, from the coast, both by currents and because of the spin of the earth. They both have an influence. And if you push the warm layer offshore, then all the cold water from underneath can come up and it's full of nutrients. And suddenly you've got nutrients and you've got sunlight, and then the phytoplankton, which are the sun harvesters, can grow and then things can eat them. And, you know, fish can eat the zooplankton and birds can eat the fish. And there's this huge explosion of life. And so that narrow strip, um, it's actually the Humboldt Current. It was uh, first, you know, named by a Westerner, by Alexander von Humboldt in the early 1800s. That strip um, in the 1960s, 40% of the entire global fish catch came from there. 
because it was so it, it broke this paradox so comprehensively. Um, and then fish catches, you know, went down because you you know there is not just an infinite number of fish. Um, and so, but that place, that that very productive area, has had a huge impact on our on you know geopolitics and culture, partly because of the fish, which was uh, mostly Peruvian anchovies, which even by enthusiasts are described with words like bold, bold flavors. It, as, as far as I can tell, it tastes disgusting. I have never eaten one. Um, but people ground them up and made them into fish meal and the fish meal was brought to Britain and it fed British pigs. And when there was a population crash in the anchovies, you know, the price of bacon doubled in Britain overnight. So you've got all these, you know, there's a thing that's happening in the ocean underneath. And then it's got all these tendrils that have influenced our lives and where we live and what we do. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Yeah, and this is also where we get, there was this... The, the guano oh, became yeah. important along this coast as well. Yeah, that's right. So guano is actually, um, the original word was wanu, which is a Quechua word for bird poo. And where all the fish are, you know, you've got you've got birds that dive. And so the Peruvian booby is a type of bird and it, it's, it fishes. So it goes down, catches its fish, and then it, it comes back up and it... Um, when it's on land, it's on these little islands that are offshore. And it, they've been doing that for centuries. And the thing about birds is that, you know, what goes in has to come out. So so the, these tiny islands were covered in poo. When Humboldt, when von Humboldt discovered them or found them, um, he 
there were 30 metres stacked up just of bird poo of guano. And it was this kind of weird, acrid stuff. And, and the locals used it for fertiliser. So he took a sample, took it home, discovered it was full of nitrogen and phosphorus, discovered it was a really good fertiliser. Um, and so people started taking the bird poo to make fertiliser. And then they realised that this is fixed nitrogen and you can make gunpowder with it. So not only was it fertilising turnips in Britain, but it was... Um, suddenly incredibly important for the military. The US government wrote a law that said, and it's still law today, any US citizen that finds unclaimed guano can claim that land for the American government because bird poo is so important. But the interesting thing about, the really interesting thing about this is not just that you have all this geopolitics and this war, but, you know, there's plenty of birds in in Europe, right? Why, presumably they all poo the same amount. Why are we not using our own bird poo? And and the reason is that that cold current um, that is surrounding the islands because of the paradox being broken in the ocean, it stops it raining. So if you don't have any rain, the bird poo doesn't get washed away and it doesn't get chemically changed. And so you've got pristine bird poo. And so again, you have guano wars fought over a resource that only exists because the ocean was doing something underneath. And, you know, history's full of these stories. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things I, I mean, I, I sort of said, oh, you know, the, the ocean's a big salty lake and, and obviously it's not. But one of the things I didn't realise prior to reading your book is to the, the extent to which the saltiness uh, changes and uh, and the, the structure of it it changes as well. Uh, you, you talk about the, the the Baltic, the comparison between the, the Baltic and um, the Mediterranean in, in salinity. And then you've also got one, I know it was deeply speculative, but one nice anecdote about when salinity changed in the Mediterranean on one, one fateful day um, a, a couple of thousand years ago. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so salt, I mean, we, we know the ocean's salty, but it's hard to comprehend actually how salty it is. That If you wanted to make the bath, you know, a standard household bath as salty as the ocean, you fill it with water, it will take a bucket of salt to make that as salty as the ocean. There is a lot of salt in the ocean and it makes water more dense. So it influences, and densely, denser water will tend to slither, slither down to the bottom. Um, and so the, the salinity does vary between the major ocean basins. It's about 10% different between the Atlantic and the Pacific. But the salt, the salt's interesting because um, it doesn't have to be like that. And there's two very interesting examples, as you said, the Mediterranean and the Baltic. I was actually at sea in the Baltic this time last year, working there for the first time. And it's thoroughly weird. It's a weird sea. And the thing about the Mediterranean and the Baltic is that they're both quite large seas, but they've got a very narrow outlet to the ocean, to the Atlantic Ocean. And um, in the Mediterranean, you've got, it's really hot, obviously, there's not much rain. Uh, there's lots of evaporation. So you get, so the water evaporates away, it leaves very salty water. And then there isn't really any fresh water from the rivers to replenish it. So you've got really salty Mediterranean. Um, and then if you go to the Baltic, and nothing, it doesn't mix with the global ocean because the Gibraltar is just too narrow. The Strait of Gibraltar is just too narrow. So it tends to stay put. Um, and then if you go up to the Baltic, you've got the opposite situation where it's cold. There's loads of rain um, and it's there's loads of rivers washing water in. And so the Baltic is extraordinarily fresh. Um, so the, uh, the the general salinity in the ocean in general doesn't, the units are a bit weird, but it's 35, 36 mostly. The Baltic is at seven. 
at the surface. It's really, it's, it's, it's like brackish. It's like a brackish lake. Um, and so the, the ocean structure, so most of the ocean is, is split into layers um, that depend on temperature and salinity. They're all layers. It's like a layer cake, but it's all done by density. So saltier water tends to go down and, and fresher, warmer water tends to stay at the top. Um, and these layers, you know, over most of the global ocean, the surface mixed layer, this kind of warm lid that, that sits on top of the ocean, it, it might be up to 100 metres thick. It, it depends on how many storms there have been, but, you know, tens to hundreds of metres thick. Um, but in some places, so, and, and that matters for the global ocean. But then there's the story that you're referring to, which is that... Um, you know, and this is the events we're talking about were 2000 years ago. It's really hard to be certain about what happened. But there was one particularly famous battle when Antony and Cleopatra were beaten by Augustus. And that was basically the end of the Roman Republic and the start of the Roman Empire. So Augustus went on to become the Roman emperor. And um, there's been all this speculation over 2,000 years about why Antony and Cleopatra lost. So it was a sea battle. They were um, set up, basically, the way it worked. All the ships were ready to go. And Antony and Cleopatra were kind of fanned out at the mouth of a, uh, a sort of river outflow, a lake outflow into the Med. Um, and Augustus was kind of around the outside and they're all set up. And the, the rule, you know, battles, for reasons I don't know, because I'm not a classicist, battles tended to start first thing in the morning. So basically the sun was up, off you went. And, and that morning, what happened was that all those ships were ready. And what should have happened is that Antony and Cleopatra's, uh, Mark, I am not a classicist, Antony and Cleopatra's ships um, came out, they should have got started because their ships had these massive bronze battering rams on the front. And, and what they were dangerous, the reason they were dangerous is that they could ram into other ships and just, you know, smash them to pieces. So they had battering rams. Augustus didn't have that. And uh, they didn't move. And the morning went on and they didn't move. And eventually they did start to move very slowly by, you know, by rowing. But they, what happened, you know, they started attacking by using slingshots, not the battering rams, the, these other weapons. And, you know, basically they lost and they had to retreat and they ran away to, to Egypt. And Augustus took all the battering rams, put them on the hill to demonstrate his victory. But this has been puzzling classicists for years because... Um, you know, there have been all these theories that remora, perhaps, which are these fish that kind of sucker onto things, that they'd suckered onto the ships and they'd somehow slowed them down. There have been all these, like, you know, people trying to explain why it was the ships couldn't move. And then just recently, there was um, some science has been done that shows that in that area at that time, because of the freshwater outflow coming out of the river where Antony and Cleopatra were, there were almost certainly layers in the water. So that, that, that bit is fairly certain. There was a fresher layer on top of the saltier Mediterranean underneath. And um, there is this thing, there is this weird phenomenon that was observed by the explorer Fridjof Nansen, which is called dead water. And basically it's when you have layers, very sharp layers, you get waves underneath, in the layers, in you know, between the, the one water layer and another. And if a ship tries to move and it's the right shape, it, it's kind of got this extra drag because it's got to create a wake inside the water beneath it. And it acts like an anchor. And so the, the mathematics seems to stack up. It's, it's a plausible theory, I think, that the reason Antony and Cleopatra couldn't move that day is that they were basically unlucky as far as the ocean was concerned. Their ships were exactly the right size to get stuck with this thing that if they tried to move, they would drag, they had this enormous amount of drag. And so basically they couldn't, 
batter, you know, their enemy. And, you know, and so the fate of the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic was sealed. And, you know, it's really what this demonstrates is that there are things happening under the ocean that affect us. And we think, oh, it's just a bad day or it's just this. But actually, there's a, there's a structure under there. It's doing something and it has an influence. And how do we how do we know these things? Um, you, you've got sort of several passages in when you, when you talk about elements of serendipity, like CFC markers and things like that, that tell us about currents. Or indeed, I mean, the, the one thing I, I asked I asked Helen beforehand what what we should talk about, and the one thing she very much specified was whale earwax. Um, so we'll, we'll need to we'll need to chat about that that as well. Maybe maybe let's do CFCs then earwax. <laughs> so. The the thing about the ocean is um, light doesn't travel through it, so we can't look into it the way we look into the sky. If I could invent an unphysical thing, I would invent a pair of binoculars that let you look down into the water the way we can look up. Because we don't really appreciate the ocean because we don't have vistas. We don't. We can't sort of look across the landscape and say, "Ah, oh, there it is." Um, but so so it's so it's taken a lot of detective work to discover what's going on where in the ocean and some of its acoustics so the roles of sound and light are switched so light doesn't travel very far through the ocean sound travels a very very long way if you want to understand the ocean you have to look with sound and it took us until the 1940s to work that out so it was a very late start um and then so there are clues to do with the messengers of the ocean, the sound and the light. And then there are clues from the passengers. And the passengers, so the, the second half of the book is written in terms of messengers, passengers and voyagers. And the passengers are the things that just get carried around. You know, they get into the water somehow and then wherever the water goes, they just go wherever that is, they're, they're just carried. And so there is this amazing thing, you know, you've probably... You will certainly have heard people talk about um, the, the ocean conveyor belt, this idea that there's this thermohaline circulation, that there's these big currents that go down in the North Atlantic and they slither along the bottom of the ocean. And there's this kind of, um, the, the this ocean conveyor belt is kind of turning over the ocean surface very slowly over over hundreds of years. And that's the sort of thing where you can, you can measure some currents in some places and you can say, oh, well, you know, we think that's what's happening. But it turns out that humans have actually put a tracer in there that means we can directly see where the ocean conveyor belt has gone. And that tracer was CFCs. And there was this guy who um, is, I mean, history's verdict on his work is very negative. At the time, you could argue he was just doing his best, but he's called Thomas Midgley and he had the misfortune or the privilege of uh, discovering both uh, leaded petrol and CFCs, both of which have done gigantic amounts of damage. Um, so what he did was, you know, he, he invents CFCs. Humanity goes, oh, these are great. They don't really do anything. You know, they're great for running your fridge and they don't seem to get broken down. So these are great. We'll just build all the fridges and all the things and generate CFCs and, and off they go. And of course, they leaked into the atmosphere. They caused problems with the ozone layer. But they also, once they're in the atmosphere, found their way into the ocean. And because the top of the ocean and the bottom are, are not very well linked, it's only in some places where you get this kind of plug hole effect where surface water goes down into the deep ocean. And the North Atlantic is one of those. So the situation we've got is that the picture of the ocean conveyor belt is that water kind of slithers along till you get into the North Atlantic and then it, it sort of sinks down and then it goes back southwards along the bottom. And we can see in the water that goes back southwards the amount of CFCs in it. And because it's traveling very slowly, I think it's, a it's around a centimeter, a few centimeters a second from memory. Um, you know, it's been what we've had CFCs for 40, 50, 60 years. And we can see 
where they've got to in the ocean. We can see that they've slithered down and they've got as far south as about Brazil, I think. Uh, so we can actually see how the currents have moved because of a tracer that we put in, into the ocean. Now, fortunately, CFCs are not, they don't seem to be doing anything bad in the ocean. They're just kind of sitting there. They're causing a lot of problems in the atmosphere. Um, but in the ocean, it's just a, a little marker that humanity's put there. And actually, it's the same with bomb carbon. So when we did atomic weapons tests, that put very specific signature into the atmosphere that then went into the ocean and we can trace where that's gone. So it's not the oceanographers making it all up. We can actually see where the water's got to. And Thomas Midgley did he did get hoist by his own petard in the end. Yeah. He got, died at the hands of his own invention. <laughs> it was very hard to know how to write that paragraph. So on one hand you're so he contracted polio after he'd given himself lead poisoning and denied it. He contracted polio, which was a very serious disease in the late 1940s. And he was an inventor. So he built himself a sort of contraption with ropes and pulleys to, to, so he could move himself out of bed. Um, and he was found one morning strangled by his own invention. And so, of course, on one side, you have someone who is in a very serious situation who has died by a horrible method. And on the other side, you can look at the a number of deaths their advent you know their inventions caused later not that they were intentionally doing it near well you know maybe maybe fate uh, fate gave him what he deserved there <laughs> um and then so, so in terms of other traces so, yeah you, you've, you've got the atomic ones you've got this passage of um tur turtles sort of sl slowly accreting uh, things on their shells whilst was crying, if I recall, <laughs> crying nine litres an hour. There's some terrible pathos of these yeah. these crying turtles. <laughs> well, so the crying, the crying, but the, I mean, I think there's a different turtle species, but the crying log, loggerhead turtles, you know, they eat jellyfish. And the problem with jellyfish is that it's basically a pile of salt water masquerading as life. It, it, there's very little actual food in there. So if you're going to live on jellyfish, you've got to be taking in an enormous amount of salt water. And as anyone who has put salt on the slugs in their garden nose. I mean, I haven't done it. My mum used to do it. Um, salt is not very good for life, right? It's not very good for living cells. It shrivels them up. And so the turtle has to manage. It's taking in all this salt with a tiny bit of nutrition. It has to take in all the salt to get any nutrition. And so it has to deal with the salt. And what they do is that in their head, they've got a kind of gland that, that filters out the salt and it has to send it somewhere. So it pushes it out of the turtle's eyes as tears, as really thick, viscous tears. And actually, if you see, you sometimes see pictures of loggerheads coming up on beaches to nest, and you can see these kind of gl salty globules that are hanging from their eyes. And that's their way of dealing with the salt, of pushing it out. So they're crying to keep themselves alive, but it is terribly, the pathos, as you say, is quite extreme. But then there are other turtles. Uh, you know, so turtles are some of the great ocean voyagers. They live a long time, but they can travel a long way. And when a turtle comes up on a beach, you know, it's basically a mystery where it's come from. It's just it's just hauled itself up and you're like, well, here's a turtle, but it's hard to tell where it's been. But some turtles carry a very particular type of barnacle, which only lives on turtles. And bear in mind that barnacles have a very lazy lifestyle. They kind of, they, a very, very young barnacle kind of floats around in the water, but then it settles and it grows in that place and, and that's what you've got. But some of them settle on turtles. And so they get this, this massive armchair voyages. They get carried through the world 
on, you know, stuck to a turtle and they can live for a couple of years. And the thing about a barnacle is it's kind of a cone that grows by adding extra layers at the bottom. So as it gets taller, it adds rings down the bottom. And so it's basically building a sort of tree ring like record of where it's been. And different types of water and different salinities and different chemical makeups leave a record in the barnacle. So the turtle may turn up as the absolute mystery, but if it's carrying barnacles, you can see something about what the water where it's been and, and trace a little bit where it's been because it's carrying a record in these barnacles, which is just a lovely idea. But the point is the ocean is different enough in different places that you can identify a signature of different water masses to tell where it's been. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of, so we, we, we've teased long enough, um, the, in terms of things, biological things that record where things have been, and I think more importantly, what they've been up to, where do I find um, whale earwax and, and what does it tell me? Well, if you go to the Natural History Museum in the, I can't remember what the gallery is, it's the one opposite the dinosaurs, um, you will find a, a sort of uh, a cross section through a, a thing which is, um, it's about the size of a Sharpie, a little bit wider, and it's this kind of long, thin kind of stick, and it's got stripes going down it, down the stick. And it doesn't look like very much, and it is a piece of whale earwax. Now, the reason whales have earwax is that they evolved from land mammals that had ears similar to ours. So, you know, an outer ear, which is the, the bit we think of as the ear, and then the kind of tube and the middle ear and the inner ear. Um, and when you evolve to move into water, if you're swimming around, you know, these sticky outbits on the outside, then they, they just cause drag. They're not doing you any good. But also underwater, and this is the same for humans, whales are not hearing through the, the ear bit, through the hole. They're hearing through the, their jaw and the bones of their skull. And it's the same for us. If we go swimming, we put our head underwater. The reason it sounds different is that the sound is not reaching the sensor through our ear like normal. It's coming through our bones and that changes the sound slightly. So whales are hearing through their jaw and they don't need an outer ear. So the outer ear over evolutionary, you know, as evolution goes on, just kind of disappears and the hole seals over. But the tube stays there. In that way, the evolution just kind of doesn't tidy up after itself. So whales still produce earwax, but the earwax can't come out of the hole because the hole's sealed over. So, so over its life, the whale produces earwax and it just kind of pushes up the tube like toothpaste. And so you get this record of a, wh a whale's life and the rest of the whale is obviously being recycled and cells are living and dying and they're kind of recycling themselves. But the earwax has a chemical record of what was going on inside the whale. And um, so you've got this plug inside every whale and then it gets better because the uh, recently, a few years ago, the Natural History Museum and the American Museum of Natural History worked out that they had lots of whale earwax plugs and that they knew when the whales had died, which meant that they could line up samples of earwax going back 150 years, covering global whales, what was going on in the global whale population. And it's there's your like 150-year record of earwax that tells this story. And the thing that they picked up on was cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And to some extent, the story is not very surprising because they also have a plot that shows industrial whaling. So we know how many whales were caught. We can see these huge peaks um, and then the trough when the whaling moratorium came in in the 1960s and early 70s. And basically, it's not a surprise to know that when there's lots of people trying to kill whales, the whales are very stressed and, and it, they, they match each other very well. But then there's this period in the Second World War when um, the 
people are busy killing each other. So they stop killing whales. So you'd think the whales would be having a, a bit of a nice life. But there's actually a real spike in whale stress at that point. And the explanation for it is that it's all the torpedoes and bombs and ships are really, really noisy. They're basically stressing the whales out because whales understand their environment through sound. That's how they find each other. That's how they navigate. That's how they communicate. That's how they organise their social structures. And suddenly there's all this noise and the whales are really, really stressed because of it. And it is written in their earwax. And then the thing that, the sort of final thing there is that, so I said to, I said to the, the curator, Richard Sabin at the Natural History Museum, because I got to go down to where all their jars are, you know, all the fun bit of the Natural History Museum where everything's in jars with very old handwriting. And I said, but, you know, surely there was only war in in some places. So why are all the whales stressed? And he said something that really blew me away. He said, well, we don't know that they're not communicating. He said, maybe they were telling each other, like there's something is stressful over here. It's time to be worried. So, so it's not just about local noise pollution, you know, specifically where the fighting was. It, it, it could be that um, we certainly know the sound can travel a long way, but maybe the whales are also sharing knowledge with each other, which says, you know, there's something stressful going on. Pay attention, be alert. How did you, with with a topic as vast as the, the ocean, um, how how did you choose your stories? How, how did you go? Cause really, you're, you're talking about massive currents, but then here's a bit of whale earwax or you know Cleopatra and Anthony. How, how what was your vision? Well, so, you know, I've had years of making TV programs and what you do in a TV program is you find an illustrative, quite often is you find an illustrative thing, right? You find a way that, that gets into a piece of science through some, you know, through some, in an, in an unexpected way. So I guess I had that habit. Um, and so what I did in practice was that I spent years kind of collecting post-it notes. And every time I saw a news story that involved something to do with history or culture or something, I just collected them all. And then I had this enormous pile to sort through. And then I had far, far more stories than I could ever fit in the book. Um, but what I wanted, part of the reason for doing it that way was because I think people find it very hard to have a relationship with the ocean. It's very distant. It's very far away. It seems like somebody else's problem. But actually, um, it's a bit like the three blind men and the elephant. You know, that sort of ancient story where there's three blind men, there's an elephant, one of them touches the trunk and says, oh, an elephant is like a snake, and one touches the leg and says, an elephant is like a tree. And the thing is, they're all right. You need all these different perspectives on the ocean in order to make sense of it. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't talk about the ocean often enough. So when I was picking stories, I deliberately wanted to cover, you know, human culture and how humans deal with the ocean and where animals are going in the ocean and how messengers travel in the ocean and, you know, to look at it from as many different aspects as possible. Because I think to say the ocean is just one thing is to completely underplay its importance. But you, the way to think about it is like you add all these stories and they are very different humans, very different animals over enormous spans of time. They've all got a way of seeing the ocean. And you add all that together and then you can see what the ocean is. So, so it was partly out of necessity because otherwise you're just talking about some water went here and some other water went there. But it's also that when it comes to us having a relationship with the ocean and actually want, actually caring about it, we need to see it through all these different lenses. And, and to be honest, it did, it did, it did. Uh, there were times when I wondered what on earth I thought I was doing. Um, but, but I think someone had to try and so I tried. And there are far more stories out there. That's, you know, what's in the book is just a selection. 
But I wanted to, it's, it's kind of, you know, it shows the shape of the ocean, but it's dressed up with these stories. But then the stories themselves matter. They're not trivial because they are why the ocean matters. Like they, they show how it works, but then they're also why it matters. Um, but basically, you know, it's a bunch of stories. They're good fun. <laughs> we have kept away from humans and what we're doing um, and what we are doing to the ocean. Uh, and I think in the book, you quite consciously spend the first half to two thirds just telling us about the ocean and not telling us we're destroying the ocean. Um, but I guess here comes the guilty bit. Um, what's How are we impacting this and how might we impact this? So the... I want I want I, I wrote it like that because I wanted people to understand what the ocean is before you talk about how it's being damaged partly because it doesn't take very long to explain once you understand how things work then if someone tells you something's being damaged you go, oh I get it I get why it matters but when it comes to the ocean we don't you know collectively as a society we don't even have an idea of the equivalent of a skeleton you know, we don't even know where the bits are or what they do. So if someone tells you this thing is broken, you, you, I don't know, what do I do? Do I panic? Is it mostly okay? What do I do with that piece of information? So I think there was a big gap to fill in in just what the ocean is doing um, before you get to, and most, most of the book is that. It's like, here is the ocean. But then when it comes to the bits where we are damaging it, um, there is, one of my editors said to me, it's a bit like a list. And I was like, yeah, it is a bit like a list. Um uh, but hopefully it's a list that makes sense once you've read the rest of the book. So, for example, um, of the so the problem of climate change is the problem of the Earth system accumulating extra energy. It's coming in at the same rate from the sun. Carbon dioxide is slowing the speed it goes out into the rest of the universe. And so it's like a bath, you know, the, the tap's going at the same rate, the plug hole's bunged up, and so the amount of energy in the system is going up. And 93% of that energy, and we can measure it quite accurately, 93% of it is ending up in the ocean. And it's mostly ending up in the surface ocean. And the reason that, I mean, it matters for lots of reasons, but um, one of the most obvious is that, you know, I said the ocean was layered. It's got these layers that are determined by density. If you make the surface ocean warmer, it's even less dense. So it's even more likely to stay at the top. So when it comes to breaking that paradox of mixing nutrients up from the surface you know, from below up to the surface, that becomes even harder because it takes more energy to cross that buoyancy boundary. So that's that's one thing. And then, of course, um, that energy is affecting where currents flow and how currents flow, and they affect our weather and how warm it is, and, and that will affect things up at the surface. And then there's kind of consequences of all of that, which is the amount of ocean oxygen. So it it is the case that the amount of oxygen in the global ocean has dropped a lot in the past 50 years uh, in, in the, mid, the mid layers of the ocean. And that matters for anything that's trying to breathe down there. And we're still trying to understand why that is. And actually, I'm going to see in November and December this year on an expedition that's partly aimed at specifically answering that question, like how does oxygen get into the deep ocean? And therefore, you know, maybe we can track how it moves about. So there's things like deoxygenation that come about as a result of having changed the structure of the ocean and the layers. And then there's all the biological stresses. So, so biology, you know, I hope one thing that's clear by the end of the book is that biology is kind of woven through the ocean. It's not just about the big stuff. It's about the tiny little things we can't see. And it's kind of woven through the whole machine. Um, but if we make it warmer, if we add pollution, if we change where life can live, we're changing the, the sort of the living fabric of the ocean for the really small things that are too small for us to see. And then, of course, anything bigger that wants to eat that 
then has a stress and then and then you get up to things like dolphins and whales that are sort of you know at the far end of the food chain and and they're stressed because their food has moved or it's somewhere else um or it's not it's not as productive as it used to be um and then there's the plastic and the pollution and you know all of these things and i think the important thing is that once it's i think that the, the in a way perhaps the the book is like, oh, look, hooray for the ocean for most of it. Isn't it this wonderful thing? And then it's like, ah, we've damaged it. But the message I really want at the end is that if we understand what it's doing, we can fix this. We can't fix all of the damage, but we can do so much better. But it starts by appreciating the ocean as a place rather than just saying, oh, well, it's just a big pond that we can just do things to. Um, it's it's doing all these things for us already. And unless we see and appreciate what they are, we risk kind of breaking them. Or just, you know, there's these schemes to take for the ocean to take up carbon, uh, extra carbon from the atmosphere, more than it's doing already. And it's incredibly hard to show that they work because, and, and of course they have biological consequences as well. You know, there's, it's complicated. You can't just do anything to the ocean. I guess that's the point. You can't just change its alkalinity or just sink some seaweed. You have to appreciate it's already doing some stuff. So, you know, the end is kind of like, if we know what it's doing, we can, we care more and then we can choose our actions more carefully and and maybe we can do better in the future but we have to we have to feel good about the ocean in order to care enough to to make these changes one last question before we finish and we're slightly out of time so let's keep it quick what is your best moment in the ocean i was on a research ship in 2013 in a big storm because we were studying storms in when it came to land in the uk it was called the st jude storm and there were 10 meter waves, a 10 meter swell, uh, 65 knot winds. And it was, and sitting, standing on the bridge of that ship, whole, clinging on to the bridge of the ship indoors, obviously, and watching the ocean roll towards us was both an enormous amount of fun and it was also proper awe that this was a big thing and I was very small in relation to it. And it was fascinating and interesting and I couldn't stop looking out of the window. And that is my best moment out on the open ocean. Fabulous. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Helen Chersky for a fascinating conversation. Um, the book again is Blue Machine, How the Ocean Shapes Our World and is available now from your local bookshop. I'm Tom Whipple and you have been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to listen ad-free, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com membership. This episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle, with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. 